come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 39 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here recording out of Columbus, Ohio. Now this week has been a little bit lighter as I came back from my furlough and work was extremely busy, so it kind of cut into some of the time that I use to watch movies, so I don't have as long of an episode with, or as many reviews on this episode as I have been, you know, doing recently here. But I do have two featured reviews. It's going to be another Journey Through the Aughts episode, which is going to be number 14 for that. And on this one, it's going to have, from 1960, I finally watched the original Village of the Damned. And then I also have a 2020 release where the filmmaker reached out to me through Instagram to watch his film that is available on Amazon Prime of Remy's Demons. So those are the two that I will be covering as the featured. And then for the mini-reviews, I did get to watch The Autopsy of Jane Doe, The Invisible Woman from 1940, as well as Ginger Snaps are the ones that I, you know, got to actually fully watch before, you know, recording this episode. Those will be the three featured reviews that I have on here. But what I'm actually going to go ahead and do, since I'm going to recap everything that I watched in July, since this is going to be the first episode of August, I'm going to get into Monthly Review. For the month of July, I watched 40 total films. 34 of them were horror films. The ones that I actually watched in July are Son of Ngagi, Spasmo, Suicide Club, The Devil's Backbone, Mulholland Drive, The Return of the Living Dead, Drums of Fu Manchu, From Hell, Slaughter High, Itchy the Killer, Brotherhood of the Wolf, Baghead, Let the Right One In, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Ruins, Trick or Treat, The Strangers, who Could Kill a Child, Relic, Lake Mungo, Eden Lake, Blood Quantum, Horrors of Spider Island, Pontypool, Twilight, The Pajama Girl Case, Martyrs, Cloverfield, Paranormal Activity, Black Friday, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, Village of the Damned, Remy's Demons, and The Invisible Woman were all of the actual titles that I watched this month of July. My highest rated films are... I have four-way tie between The Return of the Living Dead, Let the Right One In, Trick or Treat, and Martyrs were all a 10 out of 10 for me. The lowest rated one was Horrors of Spider Island that I gave a 1.5. Now, the oldest movies that I watched were all from 1940 of Son of Ngagi, Drums of Fu Manchu, Black Friday, and The Invisible Woman. And then I had three 2020 watches, which were Relic, 
Blood Quantum, and Remy's Demons, which that one will be included on this episode here. And I believe Blood Quantum technically is a 2019 film, but it was released this year after it made its festival rounds from last year. So those were all the movies, and that's kind of my monthly review for July of everything that I kind of watched in the horror realm, and kind of just how everything shakes out with it. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before we get into those mini-reviews. Enjoy.
And for the first mini-review for this week is going to be Autopsy of Jane Doe. This came out in 2016. This was directed by Andre Overdahl. It is co-written between Ian Goldberg and Richard Nyang. And it stars Brian Cox, Emil Hirsch, and Olivia Lovabond. This is from the United Kingdom, where it is a horror mystery thriller. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a father and son, both coroners are pulled into a complex mystery while attempting to identify the body of a young woman who has apparently harboring dark secrets. This was a, f- a film that I'd heard a lot about and had been on a list for me to see. Now, Stephen King, who is my favorite author, gave it a resounding endorsement, and I have also some podcasts that I listened to have done shows on it. So that was the reason that I gave it you know, the first viewing, so I sought it out for there. And then I also gave it a second viewing as I kept speaking highly of it and wanted to show it to Jamie, and it ended up being the scariest movie that we had ever seen together thus far. And it was also on Netflix, so it was also kind of made it as an easy one that we could see. Now, just to give it a little bit more background here, is that we start off with a crime scene where the sheriff, who is named Burke, who is Michael McElhatton, who comes into a room, and it's a horrific scene. There's just bodies and blood everywhere. And then they end up finding out that there's a woman in the basement going by the name of Jane Doe, who is Olwyn Catherine Kelly, but they're as of they're not sure of her identity. So what they end up doing is that they need to have an answer as to what happened to her because things just don't seem to fit at the moment. And then this is where we get to meet the local coroner, who is Tommy, and he is portrayed by Brian Cox. Now, he seems to be a guy who just has been doing it for so long that he is able to pick up on little things. And we actually get a pretty cool scene with him and his son, who is a licensed medical examiner, and his son's name is Austin, and it's Emil Hirsch, that... Austin does know his own stuff as well, but he doesn't seem to just have that eye just yet. And he always kind of seems to take the easy answers, what I think they're kind of giving us here. Now, as they're finishing up, his girlfriend of um, Emma, who is Lovabond, she spooks Austin while they're in the coroner's room there. And then Tommy decides that he's going to kind of encourage Austin to show her around a little bit and ends up spooking her to kind of get her back a little bit. Now, this couple is supposed to go to the movies, but when they bring this body in, Austin is concerned because Sheriff Burke looks very concerned, and he decides that he's going to stay and help his father. Now, this upsets Emma, but she does agree to come back later, and that they'll end up going out for the rest of the night once she does. But things are a little bit creepy as they start to unravel some of this mystery, and things aren't necessarily as they seem, and there might even be a supernatural twinge to everything as well. Now, this is one that I came in the first time completely blind, and the idea of this movie just terrified me. What I really like is, I don't necessarily want to go into a spoiler section with this, since this is a mini-review, and I won't go too deeply into things, but I just really love that you can feel the tension building with each new clue as they continue to go along with this autopsy. I could feel my anxiety going up, and I wasn't disappointed at all with what we get here, because the film is so well-written. And then the editing is also really good because we have a good runtime that is just perfect. And like I said, the tension just keeps building as they keep uncovering things. Like they will cut into her skin and find that her organs have been burned inside and that there's slash marks on it. Or that her wrists and ankles have been bound to the point where it has broken these bones and the joints there and everything like that. But what I just find interesting is that this all culminates to a reason behind what is going on here. 
and it's much scarier, and it also kind of gives a reason as to how this could be supernatural type thing as well. But on top of that, though, is that there's this claustrophobia that is kind of built into the movie. Their workroom is in the basement, and there's a lift that you have to use to get down there, but then there's also kind of one of those, like, bulkhead-type trap doors that you could get out as well. But a storm rolls in, and then a tree falls on it, so they're trapped. On top of the writing, though, we have just amazing acting. Now, Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch are two guys that I think are just phenomenal actors to begin with, but they do so great in playing off of each other, where I almost kind of get confused that they're not really father and son, just with how well I get sucked into their performance. And on top of that, though, they just do so well in building the tension as well, where we can start to see that they're getting spooked, and I mean... Tommy is a guy that is kind of no-nonsense and is very logical about everything, but as things mount, his son is trying to point out that there could be something new here and that there's something that they can't necessarily explain. I also have to give props to Kelly, who plays the model that is Jane Doe. She's completely nude for pretty much the whole movie that we get to see her in. But to be able to sit there and be as still as she is, I think there's a few times that I could tell that it was a prop stand-in type thing for it but I could also tell that there's a lot of times that it is literally her just laying there as perfectly still as possible which is completely amazing there's not a lot in the way of supporting cats but I think they do well in building up what we need here on top of that there are the supernatural aspects that we do get here are a combination of practical and CGI I kind of think that what we do get with the practical effects are just on point. I had no issues with it there. The CGI doesn't even look bad. And there's some of the things that they just play with, with lighting, and where you use your imagination at times to make it scarier. And I think that's a thing that they use and utilize very well here. Now, even the CGI that I really had an issue with would be the fire. I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but it is very quick. And at the end of it, it makes sense why it does what it does. And then on top of that, the last thing to go over would be just the soundtrack. We get a reoccurring song that plays with something with Tommy's deceased wife. And it just adds a creepy vibe there. And then outside of that, there's just some ambient sounds that help to drive the tension as well. But like I said, this movie even after the second viewing, still terrified me. And I think it's just so well put together and everything like that. Just has that claustrophobia feel. And then on top of that, the anxiety of it just gets mind going. And I think the ending is really good with what they give us. I can't really have anything that I really want to say negatively about it. But I had to come in with a rating still of a 9 out of 10 on this movie. And up next, I have The Invisible Woman from 1940. This is directed by A. Edward Sutherland. This comes from the original story by Kurt Sadamak and Joe May, and the screenplay is written by Robert Lees, Frederick I. Ronaldo, and Gertrude Purcell. This stars Virginia Bruce, John Barrymore, and John Howard. This technically isn't a horror film, but it's a comedy romance sci-fi, and I'll get into a little bit more why I'm still going to include it here, but this is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... An attractive model with ulterior motives volunteers as a guinea pig for an invisibility machine. Now, this film I had never heard of until I started working my way through the classic Universal Monster films. This one, I wouldn't really classify as a horror movie. As we don't really get any of those elements, it is really more of a crime, romance, sci-fi, comedy type film, if I'm going to be honest. Now, I did give this one a second viewing since it is from 1940, and I'm still tossing it into here, into the horror realm, due to being universal and being a sequel in name only to The Invisible Man. 
Now, just kind of delve a little bit more into this, is that we have a young playboy by the name of Richard Russell, who is John Howard. His butler, George Charles Ruggles, is at his wit's end with him. And the reason that we see this is that the lawyer for Richard, or he might be the guy who just his uh, accountant, is there to tell him that he has pretty much went through all of his money and he's broke. And a big reason is that he is providing money to a Professor Gibbs. Now, Gibbs is portrayed by John Barrymore, and he has a caretaker of Mrs. Jackson, who is Margaret Hamilton, who is, I know, from The Wizard of Oz as the Wicked Witch. Now, he thinks he's come up with a machine as well as a serum that'll make people invisible, and he's going to conduct an experiment. Now, the person who actually responds to this ad in the newspaper is Kay Carroll, but we end up realizing this is actually Kitty Carroll, portrayed by Virginia Bruce. Now, she is a model for a dressmaker, and... She wants to become invisible to kind of punish him and get back at him for being rude to him and the other girls. And her boss is Mr. Growley, who is Charles Lane. Now, what is interesting here, though, is that when she shows up, Professor Gibbs doesn't necessarily want to conduct it on her, but then does agree. And then to make matters worse, there is a group of gangsters that want to get their boss over the border back into the United States from Mexico, and they want to use this machine to do so. And something I should be pointing out here is Frankie in this group is Shemp Howard, who is one of the Three Stooges. And then we also have Oscar Homoloka, who is Blackie Cole. And I did realize earlier today that he plays in, I believe, Sabotage from Alfred Hitchcock. And then we also had Edward Brophy and Donald McBride, which I, bo- I feel like I've seen both of those guys in different movies from the past. Now, this isn't really doing a whole lot different, but it is taking a different concept using the original and just making a woman invisible, if you couldn't tell from the title of the movie what struck me was that a major concern here is that she has to be naked to become you know completely invisible because her clothes would still show now this is an issue that i have is that they're saying this is unladylike it seems quite sexist since no one was worried about claude rains or vincent price when they were completely nude but i'll digress is this is made in a misogynistic time which we still kind of living in that but again, I don't want to kind of delve into this type of politics right now. Now, something that's also interesting here is that we don't delve into Kitty going mad and doing bad things. This one, though, really plays up more of the comedy. And we also get to see that the effects don't last that long either in the grand scheme of things. And Professor Gibbs is worried that Kitty won't get in front of Richard before this wears off. But I did like that they play with the effects of alcohol and what it can do to the invisibility serum. Now, I kind of feel like they went juvenile with what they were doing here to play up the comedy role. I do like that they punished Mr. Growley for being a misogynist. And it's interesting watching this in 2020 as we're seeing more people speak out about how he treats his workers because it is horrible. And I mean, there's also been some major breakthroughs between 1940 and now as well with unions where workers, you know, have a little bit more kind of backing but it's interesting that they're dealing with labor type stuff in this movie and then it's also kind of interesting that we're dealing with gangsters in this one as well i do like the idea of using this to speak sneak over the border but i think it's a bit shocking that they're only thinking on such small terms but again i think it's because of how whimsical the film is i do kind of wish they would have looked a little bit darker and kind of added a little bit more horror to this i thought that bruce did really well though as being a modern woman and won't hold anything back, which I dug. And I have to say, her comedy was probably the best of anybody's in this movie for me. I thought Barrymore was fine, and I like that he's a little bit aloof, and he does say some pretty funny things that had me laughing. I didn't really care for Howard. He fit his role, but he doesn't really add much to me, and it kind of feels like they just needed that romance angle. Outside of that, I thought Ruggles was fine, and the gangsters were fun and rounding this out for what was needed. I did think it was fun to see Hamilton, like I said. The, this movie came out the same year as The Invisible Man Returns, since it is also going to be on my 1940s list, uh, 
which will come out uh, next week. I don't really like that the movie goes a little bit more whimsical, but I do think that they do well in using the same technology, which you know has been better since the original film, and they play with it a little bit more, so it does work well with what they're doing. Now, like I said, I don't like this one as much as either of its predecessors, but it isn't horrible. I think that he's one a little bit lighter and it doesn't really work for me. There's some built-in misogyny, but I do like that Virginia Bruce's character is kind of fighting against that. Like I said, if it would have just went a little bit more kind of what the other films prior to this did, I might have been a little bit higher. But I will say, my rating has come up on this one, and I would recommend that if you've liked the Universal films or any of the Invisible Man or, you know, just films from the era, I would recommend this because it is fun. And if you like, you know, 1940s comedies, I think you might also enjoy this film as well. But I came in here with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And for my last mini-review of this week is going to be Ginger Snaps from 2000. This is directed by John Fawcett, who helped come up with a story with Karen Walton, who ended up writing the screenplay. This stars Emily Perkins, Catherine Isabel, and Chris Lamesh. This is a drama fantasy horror film from Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With their synopsis being two death-obsessed sisters, outcasts in their suburban neighborhood must deal with tragic consequences when one of them is bitten by a deadly creature. Now, this is a movie that my sister was watching back when it came out, and I asked her, you know, what it was, and she was pretty high on it, and I'm not going to lie, I brushed it off. At the time, I didn't give a lot of chances to movies that she was watching, as I have to give it to her. She was watching more independent horror films long before I was. But I do have to eat crow because I was wrong here. It really took getting into podcasts to realize how high people were on this. And I'll admit, there was probably some built-in misogyny that I needed to get over by, you know, getting a little bit older and starting to kind of, you know, see things from a different perspective. So that's kind of me sharing that I had some growth. Now, most people already know what the creature is in this movie. And I did clean up the synopsis just for the sake of trying to be a little bit secretive. But we have two sisters, like the synopsis states, of Bridget, who is Emily Perkins. And then we have Ginger, who is Catherine Isabel. Now, Bridget goes by the nickname of B, and she is 15, but she is pretty bright as she skipped a grade where Ginger is 16. They're extremely close, and they share in their interest in death. As a hobby, they like to take pictures of them killing themselves in different ways. And I have to give them credit as the special effects they're using are pretty solid. And the two of them did make a pact that they will die together at 16. Now, what is interesting, though, is they have a pretty normal home life, but they just decided to resist it to be different. And their mother is Pamela, who is Mimi Rogers. And she kind of seems like a little bit of like a leave it to beaver or like the Brady Bunch type mother. And what is kind of interesting here is that the two girls are a lot like me when I was in junior high, when I was a bit, you know, in my, what I like to consider my gothic light phase as, but the thing is like, they aren't popular. So they're trying to resist fitting in because of that. Now in their hometown, there is rumors going around town about a beast that is killing dogs. We get an interesting scene here where a mother figures out that their family dog has been killed and she's losing it in the front yard but everybody seems to kind of be ignoring it now the crux of what happens here is that b and ginger decide they're going to play a trick on a bully in school now the bully is named trina who is daniel hamilton they're going to kidnap her dog and then stage it looks like the beast got to it as they're making their way though they come across a dead dog in a playground they hear noises and then ginger is taken off by something now, she ends up surviving this attack, but then we see that the next day that her wounds are starting to heal, and they decide to keep it secret, but then more changes start to come over Ginger, 
but on top of that, she gets her first period at 16, which is kind of an interesting thing, and it makes me wonder what was going on with her hormonally that would have prevented it, but this becomes an interesting little allegory about is she really cursed by whatever bit her and attacked her, or is she just going through her period and then changing into a woman? But what I like here is that we get a little bit of the allegory in the fact that Ginger seems to be dealing with that B represents her past and wanting to stay a child. She is rebelling against that by going after a boy that she claimed to hate in Jason, who is Jesse Moss. He's your typical tool of a high school guy, and I'll admit, I do see shades of myself in him as well, but he's got a bit ramped up to a higher thing to make it where the audience dislikes him, which I think is a good thing to do there. Regardless though, Ginger is embracing her changes and starting to dress in a way where people are starting to notice her. So even in the movie says that now she's tasted a new feeling of people seeing her, that she doesn't want to give that up and go back to being with B. This movie also does explore misogyny in the fact that Ginger ends up hooking up with with Jason, and then when B is stating that they can go ahead and spread rumors about him, Ginger kind of reveals a kind of interesting concept here that I think is very true, though, in that he got laid, so everybody's going to applaud him, where she's going to look like a slut for doing that, and it shouldn't be that way. I think people should be applauding Ginger that if she decided that she wanted to have sex with him, then that should be something that everybody else kind of would be, you know, congratulating her on. So I don't really like the fact that we have this double standard in our society where it shouldn't be that women are not allowed to do things that the guys are. So that's something I like that the movie is kind of looking at and playing with, which is interesting that we have a male director here, but I think a lot of that is he came up with the story with the woman that wrote it, and I think they do well in presenting you know, the feminine side of all of this stuff that's going on. But something that really helps all of this through for me is the acting. Isabel really steals the show here for me. She is secondary to Perkins, but I love that we see in the beginning that she is all about her pact that she made as a child to die. I saw that a lot myself in Ginger in that in school, I decided to be different before finally giving up and just starting to dress like everybody else. I'm not proud to say that I did it, but that's just what happened, especially because I went to such a small high school. The moment she starts to feel empowered, she changes, and I like that. And I really like how different she is in the beginning of this movie to what we get at the end as it shows range in her growth. With that said, though, I don't mean that as a slight to Perkins and her performance. She did a really good job as well, in my opinion, as she is so mousy in the beginning, but then she becomes our heroine of the movie. And she really needs to find that confidence to stand up to Ginger and help her, you know, to kind of become the hero. Now, aside from the two leads, I really like Rogers as she's solid as a mother here. She has a really interesting parenting style that I dig in that she's there if they need her help, but for the most part, she wants her children to figure things out and to come to her only if they really need to she takes a lot from her daughters and she's also willing to protect them no matter what which i see my parents in that because if i get in trouble they're there to help me in any way shape or form that they can and i do appreciate that they allow me to kind of make my own decisions whether they're right or wrong now the character of lamesh plays a his name is sam and he's the local drug dealer i like him is that he is really there to kind of help out with b and things that she is doing and then I also liked Moss and his performance as well. I really only knew him from Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and I forgot he was even in Final Destination 3. He plays an oddly similar character to all of these roles, but I mean, props to him for, you know, doing what he can. The only other thing that I really wanted to go over would be the creature effects. We have an interesting idea here what they're doing with the werewolf. It seems from my understanding that it doesn't change from creature to man and then back again. 
So you really don't get a lot of that in movies or other art forms when it comes to the werewolf. I don't like it as much that we lose a bit of the human element that is giving over, you know, completely to the beast. I can see what they're doing with it here for this movie, though. We aren't given a lot of time with Ginger being turned, so maybe they can go back and forth. We just didn't really get that established at all. I like that, you know, they went practical here for sure. Aside from that, I do find it odd that no one notices the more animalistic to Ginger as she is changing. And there's also some issues where there's like a dead dog on the field that they're playing field hockey in school and nobody notices until B gets checked into it. I feel like there's a little bit of an issue there. And I know there's another point in the movie where I'd be another nitpick. Like, I don't think it ruins the movie. It's just something that I'm questioning as, you know, somebody with a critical eye. I do think that the blood looks good in the movie and as does the like the gore effects and the cinematography was solid. So with that said, I'm kind of mad at myself that it took me so long to finally see this movie because this really fits into my boxes where, yes, we do have a creature feature here, but we also have some really good, interesting story behind it and there's some good allegories that go with it. I think the acting is really strong and everything like that. So I would recommend this if you haven't seen this one as if you like movies with deeper meaning or just kind of want to see a different type of werewolf film, but I came in with an 8 out of 10 after this first viewing. So that's all I got to watch this week for the mini reviews, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of one of my first featured reviews. <laughs> Science fiction has never imagined so strange or terrifying a story as that of the village of Midwich, England, cut off from life as we know it by some mysterious force. And later, at one and the same time, a child was born to every woman in the village. Children that grew to look like this. Beautiful youngsters behind whose fiery, hypnotic eyes lurk the demon forces of another world. They're not human. They ought to be destroyed. Forces put to such sinister use that it became a national emergency. We are gathered here as advisors, as scientists, as government experts. Have we established anything about the origins of these children? There is the possibility of the transmission of energy. Let me get this straight. You imply that these children may be the result of impulses directed towards us from somewhere in the universe. What we need is time to investigate. Are you aware of life on another planet? Why are you so nervous when an aircraft flies above you? Until recently, we haven't been able to make our control reach as far as a high aircraft. Oh, well, now you have, is that it? Today, their control reaches out into space. Tomorrow, will it girdle the globe? There's nothing you can do to stop us. Leave us alone. first featured review for this episode is going to be Village of the Dam from 1960. This is directed by Wolf Rilla. Also helped co-write the screenplay with Sterling Siliphant and Ronald Kinnock. And it is also based off of the novel written by John Wyndham. This stars George Zan Sanders, Barbara Shelley, and Michael Gwynn. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United Kingdom that is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb. 
and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being in the English village of Midwich, the blonde-haired, glowing-eyed children of uncertain paternity prove to have frightening powers. Now, this is a movie that I actually watched the remake long before I ever got around to seeing this one. I know my mother spoke very highly of this one, as she had recently saw it, and it's from an era, though, where she was growing up during this time and loves these older films. And it's one that I've been intrigued to check out for a while, as I've always heard that it is superior to the John Carpenter version, which is the one, obviously, that I saw growing up. And I remember when it first came out, because I actually watched that one, I believe, on HBO with my family. But we start this off in the idyllic town of Midwich. We have Gordon Zellaby, who is Sanders, talking to his brother-in-law, who is Major Alan Bernard, who is Gwyn. Now, Alan is due into town soon, but Gordon falls asleep on his end. Now, this causes concern to Alan because they were literally just talking, and Gordon just kind of kind of just fades out. And then Alan tries to figure out what happened. Now, the operator can't get through as we get to hear her asking Gordon to hang up the phone so that a call can be connected. But then... This also causes Alan to go to his superiors to figure out what is happening as he asks if he can leave a little bit earlier and there's also a military unit that is doing some training in the area. Now we soon learn that everyone in the village has fallen asleep. This goes on for a few hours and the operation takes place to figure out what has happened. They see that there's an odd perimeter where everyone inside of it is the one that has passed out and if anyone crosses it then they will as well. Now we get to see this happen when a man rides a bicycle, I believe it's a cop does this, and he falls asleep, and then we also get to see that a canary does, and we also see that all the animals are also asleep in town, and then a man in a gas mask tries to cross it, he falls asleep, and then we also get to see an airplane that is scouting from above, that it can fly over it, but once it kind of gets under the, I believe the deadline that they kind of give is that 5,000 feet that anything under that will also fall asleep. So we get to see that as it crashes. Now, just as mysterious as everyone has fallen asleep, everyone wakes up. Things seem to go back to normal. Aside from a everyone being a bit cold when they wake up, and then the fact that every woman of maturity ha- is now pregnant. Gordon and his wife, Anthea, who is Shelly, are elated. Others are not so much. Some examples here is we get one man who is returning from a year-long tour in the military to find that his wife is pregnant could understand why he'd be pretty angry. And we also have Evelyn Harrington, who is portrayed by Sarah Long. She's only 17 years old, and she claims that she's still a virgin. Now, she doesn't come out and say it in these terms, but that's obviously what they're getting at. Some don't believe that these were, you know, conceived immaculately. What helps them, though, is that through the vicar in the village confirms that at least four other women are also pregnant, and they also kind of get a rude awakening once the children are born. Something also interesting here, though, is that the children are growing quite rapidly that I believe when they're like a f- like four week or four months in, the fetuses are like uh, much more advanced, something like seven months. And I believe all of the women actually go into labor around the same time is that all of the children are born within about an hour of each other, but then they all have the same look. They all have blonde hair, and I'm assuming blue eyes, but I can't confirm that because it's in black and white. Gordon discovers that they all have a hive-like mind, which is kind of akin to things like ants and bees, where if you teach one of them something, the rest know. He tests his theory out with a Chinese puzzle box with his own son, who is David, and he'll end up being portrayed in this by Martin Stevens. He then goes around to the others, and they also solve it quickly, much like he did. This isn't just happening here, though. The military learns of a few other areas where similar children were born from an incident just like that we saw here in Midwich. 
What really scares them, though, is that these children seem to be harboring a great power. Their eyes glow, and they can make us do things. And they can also read our minds. Gordon is convinced, though, that this could be something good for science to teach and then ultimately learn from them. But what they are capable of is even more terrifying to society and the outside world. Now that I've actually seen this, I really dig what this movie's trying to do here. Seeing when this came out makes a lot of sense. Where I want to take this first are a couple things that I picked up on when I learned that there is a novel to this movie. The novel goes by the name of The Midwitch Cuckoos. What I really like here is that the cuckoo bird will lay their eggs in a nest of another bird, and then that one, once it hatches, will take most of the food, resulting normally in killing its siblings. There is an interesting allegory here. These children are doing that to this village. They really only kill when someone attempts to hurt them. The issue that I could see arising, though, is what is stopping them from eliminating others when they lose their usefulness to their survival? Keeping in mind that they're still only children, so they haven't reached that point yet. Something that also struck me was that this is during the Red Scare era. We get to learn that there are two different groups of these children that were born in the Soviet Union. One of them, I believe, was kind of out in like a Siberia-type area, and those ones were killed off. But what is interesting, though, is that I'm from the United States, and it is well-documented that the fear here over the Soviets and communism, which, you know, kind of equates back to the Red Scare, McCarthyism type of thing like that. I'm not sure to the extent of other countries, but there does seem to be at least some in part fear in the United Kingdom of this as well. I mean, if I actually sit down and think about it, I could see most democracies or republics being scared of communism because of what it would equate, and especially for those that are wealthy or those that are in the government, as they would kind of end up losing some of their power. Taking this farther, it does feel in part that the government allows Gordon his experiment when they learn that one of these villages is keeping their children alive to study them in the Soviet Union. I believe up to that point, all the ones that they've learned about have been killed off for, you know, fear of the being different or fear of kind of how they were conceived and everything like that. But it isn't surprise me that there's been competition back then between, you know, the United States and Russia with like the space race. So I could see another one happening here that if both of them had their own group of, you know, special children like that, you'd want to kind of... See if you can get them to be on your side so another grouping like that, you know, would make sense that they would keep theirs alive in competition with this other one. And it's interesting as well what happens to this other grouping, though, that is in the Soviet Union. Now, the something that kind of also I thought about as I was saying this is I'm a big fan of The Watchmen. I think the movie is good, but I think the graphic novel is amazing. Interesting thing there, though, is that Dr. Manhattan, they call him a kind of a superman i believe at first but what the real quote was that he was a god and that he's american now i know that there is the worry like what if he would have you know been a soviet that it happened to and having that power for communism it's also kind of an idea with superman is i know that there is the offshoot of i believe it's called red sun i could be wrong i'm not the biggest fan of superman but i was intrigued to learn like what happens if superman would have landed in the soviet union and been raised as you know, part of, you know, that ideology. Just kind of an interesting to play with that idea of what would happen if your enemy would have a superhuman type thing like these children here that they could end up getting on their side. So you kind of want to have your own to kind of combat it. Almost like looking at the allegory here of both sides need to have the nuclear weapons so you don't set them off. We also never really learn what the cause is here as well, which I find to be kind of an intriguing little idea. It is thought to be aliens by Gordon, and he tries to figure out if this is the case, but they're way too smart for what he's doing. This is a tense scene which is in, you know, is normal because you wouldn't expect that from these children. Now, what we've seen that these children are able to do, though, and force other people to do things they don't necessarily want to, which is, I believe, includes 
Anthena when she tries to get a bottle of milk for David that's too hot, and these and what she forces him to do, it's a lot more violent and a lot more graphic in the remake. But I think what they do here is pretty subtle. These children are just creepy with how they're always put together, how they dress similarly, and they're just also so polite. Together, it adds just a kind of eerie feel to everything. Now, I should feel I should take this next to the acting. First, I love the voice of Sanders. It took me only a few minutes to realize that he's from the Disney animated version of The Jungle Book that came from back in the day as the voice of Shere Khan the Tiger. He's interesting as the only person who really wants to study these children, while those that are on his level to make the decisions are in fear of them. Now, his wife Shelly is solid as well. She doesn't get a lot of airtime in this movie, but we do get to see her maternal instincts toward David as she does, you know, give birth to him and everything. I also thought that Gwen was solid as the military man who sides against his family. Stevens is good as David, the leader of the children. They're all just so creepy for what I said above. I think the rest of the cast are just fine in what was needed to, you know, round everything out here. Now, speaking of how creepy these children are, I should shift over to the effects. We don't get a lot of them, which a which is kind of common for this era. The best effects, though, are the children's eyes when they're using their power. Their stare is creepy to start, and then there is just something about children doing that for one thing that just creeps me out. But when you get to see their eyes glowing, it makes it even worse. I did read about the effect, which is interesting, is that it was removed from prints early on as it was too frightening for an A classification. I believe this would have been in the United Kingdom. Aside from that, we get a car accident and then the punishing of Athia. We cut away without seeing anything, but we do know what happens, which I still find it to be effective because it allows my imagination to kind of fill in some of the blanks. Really, the only effect that I had issues with would be the ending and what happens there as it just doesn't look real with what was being done there but it doesn't ruin the movie and then the cinematography i thought was also solid in my opinion and the last thing to go over would be the soundtrack for the most part it doesn't really stand out and you know it's just fine what i really wanted to comment on is the sound that is used when the children are using their powers is great it just gives off an eerie vibe and makes me wonder if these people can hear it as well it doesn't really matter if they can't but it would be uncomfortable it really is a play on the concept of them having a hive mind as it does kind of sound like the vibrating you get from bees wings now, with that said, I really ended up digging this movie, but I don't love it. It is much better than the remake, but that's not really also saying that much. I really like the concept of these children being possibly from outer space or that they're just an evolutionary jump that is an anomaly. Being that they're like ants or bees with that hive mind and the idea that the children are like cuckoos is kind of a cool thing to play with. And seeing how powerful they are and how scary for what they can become, I think the movie has an interesting allegory to aliens or those that are just different from us and can ruin our way of life. The acting is good and the limited effects used are solid for the most part. I think the sound effects work in general and I think that a bit more of this movie would have been nice because it's kind of short and it could have fleshed out some things but it's not necessarily needed. To me this is just a good movie, really worth a viewing and I will say if you have any issues it would be possibly that it's from 1960 and is in black and white so if those are problems I would avoid this and something that I kind of clicked to me while I was talking that I kind of wanted to bring up here before I give my rating and move on to the next film is the idea of that Gordon learns that they can read minds so he decides that he wants to test a theory to see if he can block them from reading it by thinking of a brick wall I think that's kind of a cool thing is that he's smart enough to kind of learn of a way to defeat them and when he starts to realize that there's nothing that they can do and that they have to be stopped, I think this is kind of a cool thing to play with here is that 
what the Soviets do to eliminate their children is that they couldn't let anybody in the village know they were going to do it. So I think it's kind of a cool thing to play with that he is way smarter than most people. So he's come up with a devised a way to kind of trick them and to prevent them from, you know, being able to use their powers. Just kind of something I wanted to also delve into just a little bit more here. But my rating on this movie would be an 8 out of 10. And like I said, I'm going to get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. I want to be all the things that Millie wants me to be. I, I, I do, Vera. I just... I don't have the words right now. For my second review of this episode is going to be Remy's Demons from 2020. This is directed by Colin Bressler, who also co-wrote this with Josh Kaza. This stars Jason Scarborough, Patrice Broderick, and Aisha Love. This is a horror film from the United States. Now, it's still too new on IMDb to have a rating, and it looks like that's very similar for Letterboxd, where it would probably be hovering right now with what's on there at about probably around a three-star movie. So let's just get into this, is that the synopsis for this movie is an autistic man fascinated by the paranormal struggles to balance the microcosm of his universe along with those around him. Now this is a movie that I didn't hear about until writer-director Colin Bresler reached out to me via Instagram for his production company. I've always been down to help independent cinema, as I said before, so I told him I would give this a viewing, and since this is a 2020 release, that's why it's being included here, you know, in the journey through the aughts. Now, I did cut the synopsis a bit short for what's on IMDb because it was a bit wordy, and there's a reason for that. The movie runs 105 minutes along or somewhere around there, and we start this off with Reagan, who is Magda Porter, as she's conducting a ritual with her son, Remy, who as a boy is Isaac Tufik. She thinks she has completed it, but Remy continues on chanting until she yells at him. We then see that they've succeeded in summoning something that looks like a demon, we only get to see a dark figure with horns, no actual features, and I think this is kind of a strategic thing that they do a few times in this movie. Remy then grows up to be Scarborough. We see that he's autistic through some different interactions, and then for a living he gives tours of places that had crimes that have happened there. Now because of his mother, Remy is blessed with the ability to be more attuned to the supernatural and can actually relay what he is seeing to people. 
Then on top of that, though, I think there's an also interesting thing is that somebody later on says that if asking if a place is haunted, he tells them that it's not necessarily the case, that these things live there, and that we just kind of inhabit the place with them. kind of thought it was a little interesting way to kind of look at hauntings or things that are possessed, like buildings and stuff to that nature. So for the most part, what he does, though, freaks normal people out, and I would say for good reasons. Now, he also seems to have his own, like, YouTube channel as well. Now, Remy also still lives with his mother. She isn't doing all that well, though, as her health is starting to fail. The movie then introduces us to Vera, who is Aisha Love. She's a bit odd herself as she goes to the local cemetery to, quote, talk, unquote, to her deceased parents. It is interesting, though, as she's a fan of Remy and watches his videos. The two of them don't officially meet, though, until... He comes to the same cemetery and she breaks the ice and goes over and speaks to him. His world, though, does come to a halt, though, when his mother passes away. She tried to overcome her illness through magic and refused to go to the doctor. With Remy's condition, he's struggling to cope. As being autistic, I know a lot of times they need to have structure and everything like that is crumbling around him. And it doesn't help that his aunt, Mildred, who is Angelita Aronce Sorison has power of attorney over him as well as you know all of his affairs and taking care of an adult male like him with his condition is a bit much for her she is a recovering alcoholic which also doesn't help she is spooked staying in that house as she keeps seeing her deceased sister as well now there are more problems when remy befriends robin who is ronald mercado he's a former convict that wants to help set up the next place for remy to do tours for the supernatural he claims that in prison he felt powerful entities around him, which Remy does confirm that that is a definite possibility. Things then take a turn though when he does something pretty unspeakable and takes a book from Remy of how to conduct rituals. So that's where I want to leave my recap for this movie. And if you couldn't tell, there's a lot of moving parts to this that I felt needed to be established before I could continue on to you know this part of the review. I do want to say that I think this movie establishes some pretty interesting concepts for sure. The first one being that of Remy. I find it interesting that we're following an autistic man and Scarborough does a solid job at portraying someone in this condition. I don't think he really is because there was a few times where I could have swore that I could tell that he was just somebody pretending to be like this, but I could be wrong there. What is fascinating for me here is that autistic people, from my understanding, really need structure. It seems that he is on the lesser side of the spectrum as he can talk to people in a fairly normal way. He knows what his passion is, which isn't the greatest in the supernatural for somebody like him. I just really like the idea of how they act putting him into something like this where in order for it to work, you really need to have full belief and structure to the ritual. So you have somebody who requires this type of thing for even to do normal tasks for himself. And I kind of think that's a kind of cool thing to play with here for this movie. Vera is also an interesting character. Love does a solid job in portraying her. I wasn't sure if she was on the spectrum herself or just someone who was kind of odd. I'm not entirely sure, but it seems like she might just be a different type of person that works well in this story, where she just kind of seems to be more in tune with nature and is just kind of a good person all around and really wants to help Remy, and I kind of like that idea. I didn't really love everything here, though. I do think this movie runs a bit too long with some of the things that really don't add a whole lot for me, unfortunately. It took me a while to figure out what was really going to be kind of the crux of this whole movie, and it really just was the last 15 or 20 minutes or so that we kind of figured that out. I think that they wanted to cram as much as they could into this and kind of deepen the story that way. It just really doesn't work as well as I feel like they wanted. 
It also feels like they could have worked better as kind of like a television series where you could flesh out more of these characters and kind of the in-between that we get. And you could even also have kind of had the supernatural affecting them in different ways and then have them all kind of interact as the story goes on. But there were just some legit times where I was freaked out with some of the scares that we get. It does really seem to be played more like a drama for a good portion of this. Now, to get back to some of the positives though, the soundtrack of this movie is great. There were a few times that it got my anxiety going and on top of that, there were just times when nothing is really happening in the movie and I was still feeling this way. That is obviously something that works well in you know setting the mood as this as a horror movie. And I did have some slight issues where the sound was a bit off with the recording or just how it was mixed. It didn't really last all that long, but it really seemed to be more of the outside shots, which I know when I've worked on a feature film before that that can be something difficult to kind of deal with. As for the next aspect where there weren't a lot in the way of effects for this movie, I'm kind of glad they didn't go CGI or do anything cheesy as that would have really hurt the movie for me. I do think that they do some really good things with shadows and the cinematography. The demon that we get to see a few times was creepy, especially by keeping it all in black and how the person portraying it moved. There were some good shots using mirrors and using the focus where we have something blurry in the background to help build tension. And I've really said all I wanted to about the two main actors, so I'll briefly talk about the rest of the cast. Porter was solid as the mother. The only real issue that she had was she looks to be the same from when Remy was a boy till an adult. Now, this isn't a huge problem, but I do have a bit of it, is that she's supposed to be sick, so something should have been done to play this up to make it, instead of just having her, you know, she was acting in that one point, and then they really didn't do any sort of makeup or anything to kind of alter that. Sorison wasn't great in my opinion either. I was questioning how she was a sister to Reagan, but I could buy that she is younger and possibly having a different parent to explain that. Like it could have been that Reagan was from, you know, a couple when they were, you know, kind of fairly young and then one of them or had a divorce or something along those lines where they end up get into a relationship with somebody who's a little bit of a different ethnic group and that is how they could be, you know, kind of sisters where they don't really kind of question the semantics of everything is kind of how I put that all together in my head because it's not really that big of a deal. Mercado is also okay and the rest of the cast were just fine and rounding this out for what was needed but nobody really stood out in my opinion. So now with that said, I do think there's some interesting concepts here. I like the idea of taking the supernatural with someone who is autistic and kind of meshing them together. It is something I don't really recall seeing ever before, I guess outside of something like Hellbound Hellraiser 2. The acting is fine for the most part. I really like the soundtrack and how the movie was shot as was well done in my opinion there for sure. If I have any issues, it would be that the movie's just too long and focuses on things that we don't really need. I feel this is just slightly over average for me though, and it just didn't come together as much as I wanted it to. So my rating here is a 5.5 out of 10. I don't really have any sort of trivia or anything like that. The movie's still fairly new and it's kind of independent, so I didn't really reach out to the director to kind of ask anything or anything like that, so I do apologize there. I would still say this is a movie that sounds interesting to you to give it a viewing and you can check this out on Amazon Prime. But what I'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Still 
I want to thank you for listening to episode number 39 here on Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. To close out the show, if you'd like to get in touch with me via email, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, you can do so at Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, you can follow any of my reviews on there as well, and that's David OSU. On Instagram, you can follow me to figure out which ones I'm dropping for reviews with my name on there is davidosu87. And if you want to download the Flick Chat app on iOS or Android, you can get in on the chat over there at Journey with a Cinephile. The last thing I would ask you to do, if you could, would be to, if you're not already subscribed to me, go ahead and do that on whatever podcatching app or service you're using so you never miss an episode. And if you're able to rate and review, if you could do so just for me on there, just so I can kind of get more listeners out there, as well as to find out what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can make this show be the best possible product out there as well. Now... For next episode, being episode number 40, kind of another little milestone type thing there, what I'm going to go ahead and do is do my countdown list of the top films from 1940 as well as 1950 since I only saw one from that year. So those are going to be combined into one list. I will still do mini reviews on there as well, but that is going to be what the feature will be on that episode. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is before I close this out, I want to tell you that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time. This is David Garrett Jr., your tour guide, signing off.